All right. Well, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Thanks again for joining us in our Doctrine of Man and Sin class. As you can see, uh, just a reminder, we're going to be going moving into the Doctrine of Sin. We finished the Doctrine of Man last week. I'm sure there's much more to teach, but at least that got us through a lot of material on the subject and hopefully gave you a, a general overview And so we're going to start into the Doctrine of Sin, and this will take us through the end of the year. We won't have class on Christmas Eve, Sundays on Christmas Eve this year. We're going to still have our normal service. We'll have two services, actually, for the first time since my Baptist, Foreign Baptist days. We used to have morning and evening service every Sunday. But... um, but that'll be neat, but we're not going to have class that day. So, But other than that, I think we'll have our normal classes all the way through. So why don't we open with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to be together again on the Lord's Day. We thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ and being known by Him, being numbered among the saints of God, members of the New Covenant community. We think of that that line in Ephesians 1, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And that you did that through your love, because of your love. These things are incomprehensible to us. Why you would lavish such grace, such goodness upon sinners like us, rebels, formerly your enemies. And so we just marvel. You have melted our hearts. You have given us a love for you, a love for your Son. And that's why we're here, Lord. And we pray that even this morning as we dive once again into your word, that you would illumine our hearts by your Spirit. Give us understanding and not just intellectual knowledge, but true wisdom, truth that would sink into our hearts and really change the way that we think and the values of our hearts and and therefore the way that we live as well. Uh, So, Please instruct us in your truth by the Spirit, we pray, even this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so the first thing we're going to tackle on the doctrine of sin is what sin is. So the nature of sin. And uh, the first thing I want to talk about is sin's ultimate standard. Okay, because whenever you're talking about Morality, which of course sin is a moral issue, it requires an ultimate moral standard. Okay, so if you think about it, people talk about the problem of evil for Christians as one of the great problems for the Christian faith, the the so-called problem of evil. That is, how could a good God allow evil, right? And you say, yeah, that's that's a difficult problem. There's some things that we can say from the scripture But there's also an element of mystery to it, right? Where it's an issue that when you go back to, you know, into eternity past and say, you know, why would God allow not just evil, but such pervasive and terrible evil to occur? Could that really have been the wisest and best plan for his creation? And we say, yes, yes, it is. But, you know, who can understand the depths of God's wisdom? And it doesn't surprise us that there's elements of this that are beyond our comprehension. 
the same God who you know created the DNA structure in, in the cells of your body and and has fashioned the the stars and planets of the universe and established its fine tuning so that we could exist here on Earth may just know a few things that we don't, right? So, yeah, so the problem of evil for Christians, how can a good God allow evil? However, if you think about it, there's also a problem of evil for atheists, for those that would deny the existence of God. And that is, if there is no God, how can evil exist? Right? So, we all heard our own president rightly describe the events that happened in Israel the last a couple weeks ago as pure evil. But how can you say that if there is no God? We all look at those events and we say, yes, those are objectively evil. And we all say, you're going to be hard-pressed to find an atheist who will say that those things were not evil. The problem is, for the atheist, is how can you say that they are evil if all that we are as human beings is matter in motion, molecules banging together randomly over time. So you have a problem from that perspective as well, because if there is no God, then there is no transcendent moral being, there is no lawgiver by which we have uh, the moral, moral laws that are objectively true for everyone in the universe. If you take God out of the picture, there really is no such thing as good and evil. We can make those things up, but then who's to say what is ultimately good and evil for you. You might have a different opinion than me, and how are we to judge if there are no objective moral standards, and where would such objective moral standards come from if there is no ultimate moral being who is setting the rules for his creation? So, the issue of an ultimate moral standard is so critical when we're talking about the doctrine of sin, because sin has to do with Morality and morality requires an ultimate moral standard. And so, what is that ultimate moral standard? Well, it certainly isn't man. I mean, we see that in our day that man would like to claim that each human society can make up their own moral standards. The problem is, is that when you have something like happened with Hamas in Israel, We all want to say, no, that's wrong. It's wrong for Hamas. It's wrong for anyone who would do such things. And so we don't really want to say that human beings can make up their own moral standards and that morality is nothing more than a social convention. We all want to say, hey, if you come along and take my car, that's wrong. Uh, If you come along and commit adultery with my spouse, that is wrong. I don't care what universe you live in, or what planet, or what country you live in, I don't care the moral conventions of your society, that is objectively wrong. And so, man cannot be the creator of the moral, of ultimate moral standards, because man himself is not ultimate. And and this is what we see, right? That human standards, when we attempt to make up our own moral standards, what happens is they are always shifting and changing. Uh, so the people who are decrying, you know, the stand, moral standards in our society from times past today, guess what their grandchildren are going to be doing? 
They're going to be decrying the moral standards of the people that live today. Why? Because man's moral standards are always shifting and changing. They're not ultimate. They're not fixed. They're not transcendent above all of the shifting shadows of this world. Yes, and so we look at man's moral standards and we see, you know, even when man makes up moral standards, they oftentimes come up with the same kinds of things, don't they? Treat your neighbor as you would want to be treated yourself, right? The so-called golden rule. Why is it that there is this commonality between at least some of the moral standards of any society? Well, I would argue it's because man is made in the image of God, and God has written the work of his law upon the heart of man, such that we all have an intuitive, common understanding of at least basic moral principles but where do, do, does all that come from? And of course, we have to answer that it ultimately comes from the Creator, from the one who is outside of time and space, the one who is not part of this creation, but made this creation and, and has established the way things are in it. It is His nature, God's nature, the Creator, That is the ultimate standard for morality. And any commonality between human morality that we see is just merely a reflection that we bear the image of our Creator and He has planted within us an intuitive understanding of what is right and wrong. In other words, we would call it our conscience. But God's nature is where morality comes from. It is the fixed standard of morality for the universe. And true moral values, true uh, virtue, must be relative to God. He sets the standard. And so when we talk about sin, we are talking about moral issues that derive their ultimate basis from God and His nature. So any questions on that or any comments on that first point? That sin's ultimate standard is God's own holy and righteous character. One of the things I was thinking of when you were talking about things are moving, that we keep changing it. And and like what I mentioned last week, that Satan is trying to erase those lines of of morality. Right. um, Because if there's no ultimate standard, God, then people are less likely to seek him. Right. Yeah, in the garden, what did Satan tell Eve? You know, he said, has God really said? And she said, well, yeah, God said that we shall not eat of the tree and and shall not even touch it. And he said, you will not. Or we'll die. And he said, you will not die. Really what God's doing is he's holding you back from something that he knows will make you like him, right? And from the beginning... The great lie is that moral standards hold us back. They keep us from freedom. And if we have that freedom, we'll have something better than we had before. In other words, if we have the right to determine what's right or wrong. And isn't that what we see today? That people view any kind of moral standard, at least you know the moral standards that they don't like, as hindering them, as holding them back from something that as being oppressive, to use the language of today. And we would argue, hey, if you give yourself over to that, 
that's going to destroy you. God's standards are like fences to keep us in, to keep us from going off the cliff, to keep us in a place where we will experience his blessing. I mean, Adam and Eve, for heaven's sakes, they were in the garden. And he said, of all the trees, eat freely. Just respect me as the ultimate sovereign, that that I'm the one who determines for you what is good and evil. So don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Respect my authority and you will prosper under it. Cast off my authority and you will die. Okay, so good and evil. Sin's ultimate standard All right, is God's moral nature. All right, let's talk about sin's character. The character of sin. I want to actually utilize an old catechism. The famous Westminster Larger Catechism gives has a question that asks, what is sin? And so I thought, well, let's go ahead and use this because I think what you'll see is it's very nuanced, very thought through, and is rooted in Scripture. So what is sin? Answer, according to the Westminster Catechism, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. So there's lots to say there. You see they're making a distinction here between uh, sin is something that can only be committed by reasonable creatures. So who who would be in that category? Humans and? Angels. Angels. Angels sinned as well. So personal, moral creatures, not llamas or even dolphins, as cute as they are, and undoubtedly smart. Okay, but there's, there's something, there's a quality in, of, of creature that, to which this applies, that the law is coming not from random places, not from social conventions, but from God. So, and so the standard is the law of God, and law indicates revelation. So God's character is revealed to us through the law. And notice that there is, sin is defined both in terms of want of conformity unto. What does that mean? Right. Okay. Um, So, but uh, Ben, who grew up Presbyterian and probably used the catechism, said omission, right? So you've heard of sins of omission. In other words, not doing what the law commands. So you shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't do that, you are lacking conformity unto. You are failing to live up to the command. And then there's also transgression of. So if you think of transgression as the opposite of, there's the line and you intentionally cross it, right? You break the boundary. So the Bible says, you shall not murder. What would transgression of that look like? It would be look like murdering, right? You do what the law says not to do. So you can sin by not doing what the law says or doing what the law says not to do, right? So it's a pretty sophisticated definition. Where is it coming from in the scripture? Well, the proof text that it gives, and I'm adding one to this, 
Our 1 John 3, 4 and Galatians 3, 10. One thing about the proof text is we shouldn't think of the proof text of the catechism as being sort of like we think of proof text. Like if we just look at this text, it's just going to give us a pat answer of where they got it. There's a lot of depth of thinking into how these proof texts, how these texts um, point us to the truth articulated in the catechism. That isn't necessarily always evident on its face. And there's actually been a lot of work done in the catechisms, opening up how these proof texts that they've offered are actually pretty profound in the depth of insight that they have. But it would take an exposition of the texts. Uh, and also, they're not comprehensive. They're not saying that these are the only texts. They're just giving a couple of examples. But it is helpful that First John chapter 3, verse 4, just simply says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is, in other words, any want of conformity to or uh, transgression of any law of God. Any revealed standard of God that reflects to us His moral character. If we don't live up to it, either by way of omission or commission, we are sinning. So that's not the only way that the Bible describes sin, but it is a a very fundamental and helpful way of describing it. Now, Galatians 3.10 points us in the same direction when it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So here again we see God's curse, punishment, penalty falls upon those who do not abide by everything written in his law. Sin is lawlessness. Another text that is helpful, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So here we see an attitude of heart that is hostile to God that will not submit to His law. Again, you could see sin is lawlessness. It is a refusal, a rebellion against God's revealed standards for us as human beings. All right? And so there are many other texts that we could point to, but this is, a, I think, a very helpful summary. By the way, if you haven't availed yourself of the old catechisms and confessions, you should, right? They're uh, very, very helpful. And you don't uh, just write them off as being, oh, that's just so old-fashioned. I guarantee you this. Once you start thinking deeply about doctrine, you're going to find, and you're like, where can I go to help me really articulate sound doctrine. One, the best place you can go is go back and see, what did, that, what did the catechism say about it? What did the confession say about it? <laughs> because they're full of rich biblical wisdom in how they articulate truth, and also in a very simple way that even a child could learn. Okay, so any questions about sin's character here? Yeah, Becky. I'm glad you added Romans 8 because it said the mind. So it's not just what we do right. or don't do. Right. But it's also anything we think, right. say, or do that right. pleases God or breaks 
his commands. But don't go any farther down that road because I have a whole slide on that. So, but, but good point. Good point. Good point. All right. Any other? Let me, let me just hit this next side because basically what I want to do is I want to make some further observations about sin's character that reflect upon the truth that the Catechism pointed out. And we're not quite getting to Becky's uh, comment yet, but we will. But let me just point out a few things here. One, since God's law is an expression of his moral character, sin is ultimately a failure to conform to God's moral character. And I think this is so important because, you know, when you talk about breaking a command, we tend to abstract that. Why is God so bothered about us breaking rules, you know? Why is he such a stickler about rules? You know, even just eating a piece of fruit led to death. But you see, the issue is not just an abstract rule. The rule, the laws of God, are reflecting his own righteous and holy and perfectly good nature and character. So, um, sin is not just about breaking a rule. It's about failing to conform to, either by way of omission or commission, the standards that reflect and reveal to us the very character of our Creator. And by the way, why is that important? Why is that a significant thing that we would fail to conform in our lives to the character of God? God's power and authority and position of God. Right. So there's a, a denial of God's power and authority when we do that. But what about what about us makes that such a an odious thing that we, as human beings, would fail to, would grossly fail to reflect the and conform to the moral character of our Creator. Right. Because God made us in His image so that when the angels of God would look at us, right, they would see images of God reflecting His character. In other words, glorifying Him through our lives. As we filled the earth, we were to fill it with His glory. So when and this is what sin is, we fail to, to reflect the character of God, fail to conform to His moral character in our life, and instead violate it and twist it and reflect something different, it is a very, it is the exact opposite of the intention that God has for humanity from the beginning. And that's what, you know, when you look at Genesis chapter 6, in fact, let's just look there. That's why this is such a, an ugly picture. Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Let's just look at this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, the, the word filled... The earth was filled. It, it really echoes back to God's original command to man, right? Be fruitful and multiply and 
fill the earth, right? And what were we to fill it with? The, the glory of God radiating forth from our character as his image bearers, and instead, now God looked down upon a ruined humanity that was filling the earth with violence, that had corrupted its way upon the earth. That's why he is perfectly just to say, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. A second observation. Sin is not just about breaking abstract rules, like we just said, but it is a personal violation of the will, that is the law of God, the God who made us. This is where Sproul gets his famous phrase that sin is cosmic treason. I mean, think about it. When Eve took that fruit, you know, she heard, listened to the serpent. He said, you will surely not die if you eat this. What will happen is you will become like God. When she took that fruit, do you see what was happening? It wasn't just breaking a rule. <laughs> it was saying, God doesn't have my best interests at heart. God is withholding something good for me. In fact, God is holding me back intentionally so that we wouldn't become like Him. And, and so we're going to take that fruit for ourselves. We are going to determine for ourselves what is good and evil. We think we should be on the throne. We should make the decisions for ourselves rather than the God who made us. Do you see? Cosmic treason. It is a personal affront, like Katrina was saying, to the sovereignty of God as our Creator. Sin is not just breaking abstract rules. It is a personal shaking of the fist in the face of God, even if we don't think of ourselves as doing that, right? Even if we smile at Him while we're doing it. Hi, God. You know, we're just going to do our own thing down here. Objectively, it is cosmic treason. And so that's something we have, to, we have to understand. When we talk about sin as lawlessness, we're not just talking about breaking abstract rules that somehow we're out there in the universe. <laughs> These rules flow to us from the character of our Creator. They reveal His moral nature and His will for us as His image-bearing creatures to fail to conform to His law either by not doing what it says or doing explicitly what it forbids, is a personal affront to our sovereign King and Creator who in His goodness had made us in His image and given us every good thing. In no way should we have ever done that. Right? Now, why do you think it is that we don't we don't grasp the true horror of sin. And we're sinners. Self-centered. We've got a really finite mind. We're small and finite. Too highly of ourselves. We think very highly of ourselves, and so spiritually dead. Yeah, spiritually dead. Our, 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 our. You know, Paul talks about our hearts are darkened, our minds are darkened. Professing to be wise, we become fools. And I think also, you know, if you walked around every day. And you were covered in mud. 
and everyone else around you is covered in mud, you may not think anything of that mud, right? You just became so used to it, it was normal. But if all of a sudden someone comes into your midst, not covered in mud, but perfectly clean and pretty sharp dressed, all of a sudden your muddiness becomes much more apparent, right? And so that too speaks to, I think we we just swim in sin. Every day we commit so many sins and everyone around us does. And so what we end up doing is we look at really bad people and we say, well, I'm certainly not like them. And so we think of our little sins as being little. Not only that, but then we take the mud that's on us and we throw it at that clean person. Right. Trying to make them right. not right. to be like us. In John chapter 3, you remember what Jesus said. Verse 19 of chapter 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, there's a sense in which the natural condition of humanity is like, we're like spiritual cockroaches who love the darkness and hate the light, precisely because it exposes us for what we really are. I mean, this is why, you know, I, there's just something about that video on the internet, not to, I'm not trying to bash Bethel, but there's this video of, they claim that the glory cloud of the Lord came into their sanctuary, and people are filming it, and they're like, wow, and people are cheering, yeah. I mean, one of the great problems with that is, when the glory cloud of the Lord shows up in Scripture, what happens? I mean, people... Think of, think of uh, Isaiah in the temple. You know, my eyes have seen the Lord. What happened? He said, woe is me. I am undone. I mean, if it truly was a revelation, a manifestation of the glorious presence of God, I don't think we're going to be going, Yay! <laughs> Wow, look at this. I can get it on my phone. I think something else will be happening. And I think it shows a profound lack of the appropriate reverence for God. If this is the more we know God in all of his holiness and his glory, the more our sin will be seen for its true sinfulness. And so that's another reason why. Because we are so unacquainted with God. Or we can become so distant from Him. All right. Another, sin can involve both the want of conformity to God's law and the transgression of it. We've talked about this. Just a couple verses to put a little flesh on these bones. James 4.17 So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You think of the priest and the Levite seeing the Samaritan man, you know, laying there in need and cross over to the other side of the street and carry on. We didn't do anything. That's exactly the point. You didn't do what you should have done. Now let's be careful because that can easily apply to any of us. And then the transgression of the law of God, the breaking of it, 
So this is what God was pointing out in Genesis 3.11. He goes to Adam, and he says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God had commanded him not to eat. It was the one command he gave him, right? It's not to say that there were not other moral standards for Adam. He still had the work of the law written upon his heart. He knew that it would have been wrong to murder, wrong to steal. However, he had one law revealed to him, and that was, of all the trees of the garden you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There was the revealed law of God at that point in redemptive history, and he broke it. That's transgression. And as far as we know, that was the only law that had been right. given. Right. And he broke that one. Right. And of course, Satan, that's what he was going for, right? Zeroed in on that one command. And, and we all understand that, right? We can have all the freedoms in the world, but if there's one thing that's prohibited, what sticks in our mind and what is it that we think about doing, right? I heard this story once about uh, a hotel that had some windows that were directly out over the ocean. I don't know if you guys have probably heard this story. I don't know if it's true. It might be apocryphal. But they had a problem with some people put a fishing pole out the window and were fishing in the sea outside the window. And so what did they do? They put a sign up. No fishing from the windows. And guess what happened? All kinds, more people started fishing out the window. They'd never even thought of that. But now that there was an explicit law against it, it stirred them up to break that command. That's our human nature. If you deny that, you've never raised children. Or been a child, for that matter. <laughs> All right, well, any, any questions or comments about sin's character before we move? Okay. Next slide. Lest by describing sin as lawlessness or in terms of the law of God, we should also recognize that there are many terms in Scripture. This is just a sampling of terms used in the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament to describe sin, to refer to sin. And you can see them there. To miss, to go wrong, to rebel, to be unfaithful or treacherous, an abomination. You guys have all heard of that Hebrew word, probably toeva, used in especially Leviticus 18 and 20 to describe various sexual acts of deviancy. They're called abominations or detestable things, to err, misdeed, iniquity, transgression, crime, wicked. And then in the New Testament, the, the most common word for sin, hamartia, sin, usually, that's usually what is being translated as sin in the New Testament. Lawlessness, ungodliness, unrighteousness, injustice, transgression, disobedience, offense, wrongdoing, immorality, sensuality, impurity. And we could go on, right? The Bible has a profuse vocabulary when it comes to sin. But what I want to point out is that when you look at the way the Bible describes sin, it is actually interesting to look at the various words used. How does this, seeing this vocabulary, the way the Bible describes sin, how does that affect our perception of sin? 
And how might it be a correct, a helpful corrective? It presents it as a much more glaring thing than we want to think about it in modern culture. These are all strong words, and none of them are overly fun to be called. No one wants to be told you are acting in an abominable way. Right. In fact, they are acting in an abominable way. Right. Right. Anyone else? I don't see you messed up in there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right. Our our definition is pretty light. Yeah. Exactly. White lie, mistake. I think, I think that's the very one of the most common ways that we describe sin. Mistake. I mean, I got news for you. The Bible never describes sin as a mistake. It's not to say. I mean, it is true, and a lot of people point this out that certain of the vocabulary has an idea within its semantic range of missing the mark. Right? That's true. There's a mark, we missed it. You know, sin is lawlessness, a lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. But if you just take that and make that the totality of your definition of sin, I mean, goodness, you are going to have a very uh, anemic view of sin. I like the way Paul Tripp does so well at bringing it back to a heart issue. Right. Uh, a condition of the heart. Right, but, and, and we'll get to that, like I said, but if you, let's just say that, um, you know, husband catches wife looking at inappropriate images on his computer, and he says, I know, honey, I messed up. Bible says, <laughs> you acted wickedly. You were treacherous to your marriage vows. This is ungodliness, immorality, right? This is stuff that <laughs> the Bible's language is so helpful because it it brings to our mind, it sort of slaps us across the face and says, no, no, this is the true way to describe our sin. And and what why is that helpful? I mean, why is it so unhelpful to reduce sin down to a mistake? We shouldn't tolerate it. It helps us to hate our sin more. It helps us to see why we can't just play around with sin, just tolerate it in our life. What else? Without Christ, doesn't I mean, as soon as we sin, each of these definitions describes that person. Right. It, it helps us to have a more sober and serious understanding of our true condition apart from Christ? If we don't look at sin in its appropriate spot, we'll do it again. Right. It, 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 gives, us, it, it, can, it gives us a conviction that would lead us toward repentance, right? And also, wouldn't you say, you guys, that when you describe sin this way and you begin to see its true heinousness, its true nature... And, and even what we were saying before, that it's personal affront to God. Remember David, Psalm 51, famously sinned with Bathsheba, and he says, against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And you say, you alone? 
I mean, first of all, there was Bathsheba and Uriah, and then there was the consequences for your family and for the nation, and you lied to all of your courtiers. And as D.A. Carson, I remember, memorably put it, there wasn't really one in Israel against whom he hadn't sinned. And yet, he says, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why would he say that? Because he recognized that first and foremost, his behavior was treachery and wickedness before the God who made him. And God was his ultimate judge. Now, when you recognize this, when you see sin for what it is, and then you hear, and he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquity, and our sins were laid upon him, it helps you also not only recognize the gravity of our moral corruption, how, just how bad off we were, and what trouble we were in, but also helps us to realize the true glory of the atoning work of Christ. Amen. And, and in fact, we would say we can't really have the appreciation of that that we ought, apart from an understanding of sin. Sam. So what makes sin appeal to us? I mean, we wouldn't do it if it didn't look good. Now, is that Satan or is that the nature of sin itself? Well, I would say that sin in and of itself is objectively ugly. Why is it that it's so attractive to us? Well, Satan is certainly a part of that, but Satan didn't have much much progress with Jesus. What's the difference? Why was Jesus not attracted to sin, but we are? He didn't have a sinful nature. We are so corrupted in our nature that our natural desires find sin appealing. We have, this is why the the New International Version will often translate the word flesh, it's often translated flesh in the ESV, as sinful nature. Just, it's not always an accurate translation, so there's been lots of talk about how they, they really messed up on that. It's not, it can't always be translated sinful nature, but in many contexts that is an appropriate translation that our nature that we inherited from Adam is cor- so corrupted that it desires what God hates. Yeah. And all, and all we have to do is just pay attention to the desires that naturally arise from our hearts. Let's just say you're in your work and a promotion comes up. You've really wanted that job. It would be a sweet schedule. Oh, it would be great. More money. I've, I'm the most qualified person and someone else gets it. Do you rejoice with those who rejoice and say, wow, I'm so happy for you? What naturally arises? Envy, jealousy. That could give birth to hatred. Or let's just say that someone you hear has committed some terrible sin. Are you naturally grieved over the offense to God's glory and filled with compassion for this person as the destructive effects of it? Seeking their, well, maybe there's some of that. What else can you naturally arise in your heart? Self-righteousness, 
pride, condemnation. Our nature from Adam is corrupt. Only grace changes us that we would... So if you truly hate sin, not just the consequences of sin. I mean, my fraternity brothers used to wake up on Monday morning and hate what they did (laughs) the last weekend. Then they go right back and do it the next weekend. Well, because they didn't like the consequences of it. But but they weren't thinking about God and they weren't thinking about offense to His glory and they weren't worried about any of that. It takes grace to so change our nature that we would truly hate it for what it is so that we would repent before God. So yeah, it's, it's a good question. And we'll, we'll talk about this. In fact, here we are. <laughs> what I want to suggest is that sin occurs at three main levels. First, at the level of people's outward actions in the body. So you can't say that I stole that pencil in class, your kid, I hit that person who um, yelled at me, but I didn't mean to, and that just wipes it away. No, the action you committed is inherently sinful. So the outward actions in the body are sinful. So if you look at the Ten Commandments, if you go to Exodus 20, you see this, verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. These are actions in the body. Now, I'm not saying that that's all there is to those commands, but at the end of the day, don't kill people. Don't sleep with another person's spouse. Don't steal what doesn't belong to you, right? Outward actions in the body are objectively sinful. Even if there's mitigating circumstances, even if there was a, a things going on in your heart that you were struggling between different motivations, whatever, a person that commits that act, they're still going to jail. You know, if it's a that's crime, for instance, the outward actions in the body. That's one level of sin. However, there's also sin also occurs at the level of people's inward activity of the heart, right? And to see that, all you have to do is go down a couple commandments to verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, a female servant, his ox, donkey, anything that is your neighbor. So there, you might not actually do anything outward in the body and you could still break that command. How? By just desiring what doesn't belong to you. Which, by the way, coveting is the root of stealing, right? And if you look at Jesus' exposition in the Sermon on the Mount, you see how he brings this out. Matthew 5.22 But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So, it's not just the outward act of murder in the body, but it is the inward anger of the heart, an inward disposition of the heart, an attitude of the heart. It it really is an, an activity of the heart, but it's at that level as well that that uh, sin takes place. And verse 27 as well, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, 
that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So there's the inward activity of the heart. That too is a level at which sin takes place. And in fact, just to go back to that very sobering line in Genesis 6, 5, do you remember what it said? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Right? So, it's even if you didn't actually act upon it, you could still sin through the thoughts and desires, motivations of your heart. And then one more level. And that is, that sin occurs at the very level, at the level of people's moral nature. In other words, we don't just sin, we are sinners. We are born with a nature that is, by way of its disposition, so corrupt that it loves what is evil and hates what is good. Now, we could qualify that in different ways, but I think we know what we mean. I think this is what David was talking about in Psalm 51, verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and here's the parallel, in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, what was David talking about? Was he, say, was he saying that he was born as the result of the sinful behavior of his mother? Is that what he means? No, he means that he was brought forth from his mother's womb as a sinner. And you say, well, come on. And then you have your first child. And then you realize, wow. As soon as, that, as the moral character of that little human being begins to manifest itself in different ways, you see that it's not prone to good, but prone to evil. I had someone say that, well, God created us, and that's our, our, you know, our moral nature, so how can he condemn us for being, living that way and being that way when he created us? Right. So what would be the problem with what's missing in that worldview? The fall. The assumption is that the way things are right now, including humanity, is the way God originally created them as good. And that's just simply not true. If you were talking about Adam before the fall, and you said, well, God created him, so it must be good, you say, yep. The problem is Adam sinned and passed on this ugly inheritance of original sin to all of his progeny so that now every human being is born a sinner. And... And, by the way, the natural world. People say, how could God let this happen? Tornadoes and whatnot. Well, He didn't let it happen. He created the world without these things, but as a result of man's sin, a curse was placed upon the world. So what you're seeing is not the world as it always was, but the world post-fall, right? And that's an important category. That's why when people say, well, I have these, these kinds of desires... I can't be condemned for them. I must have my own identity and it must be affirmed as morally right. And we say, well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we all have sinful desires. I venture to say none of you wants anyone else in this room to see all the thoughts and desires that emerge naturally from your hearts and your minds that you daily must put to death and restrain. And We're sinners. We're born sinners by nature. Ephesians 2.3 among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So it's universal, all mankind. 
by nature children of wrath, that is, we have natures that naturally do produce fruit that evokes God's wrath. And that's why he talks about the passions of our flesh, the natural desires of the sinful nature that we're born with are sinful, right? If we follow them, it leads to... It lead, if, if we just do what comes naturally to us, it doesn't go well, does it? And that's... We looked at this text before, but go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 7, and you see it again, right? The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. So our flesh produces... It's fundamentally hostile to God. It's only the Spirit who brings renewal and change that changes that, that unlocks our hearts from this natural hostility toward God. And people say, well, I'm not hostile to God. Yes, that's because the God you're thinking of is a God that doesn't make you mad. But if you actually look at the Bible and look at the one true real God, you're going to find that you have problems with Him. Because he tells you that you're a sinner. Because he tells you you're going to hell if you don't repent. Because he tells you that you need to be saved apart from your works, etc., etc. Um, so, I don't disagree that we're born sinners, right? right. Don't you think that once we um, are born again, our nature starts to shift right. and grow, right? Yes. Like, this is what regeneration is about, right? Is yeah. the fundamental disposition of our hearts is changed. We are brought from death to life. We are filled with new holy desires to honor God, right? But apart from that, we're in bondage to sin, right? So, yeah, so being born again, it's like a spiritual resurrection in the sense that we're brought from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life and the disposition of our heart is changed. And that's the only yeah, that's the only way that we can obey God. Now, we still have the flesh is still there until we die or are raised, but, but yes, something new is birthed within it. And so that's why Paul says, to us as Christians, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Put off the old man, put on the new. Does that make sense? It's possible to go a day without sinning. Not for me. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good answer. I mean, I would say that the Spirit of God has made it such that through our regeneration and through His, by His strength, that in any given moment, we cannot say that I have to sin, yeah. right? I can obey by the power of the Spirit. However, James says, we all stumble in many ways. <laughs> if anyone says he does not sin with his tongue, he is a perfect man, right? And so there's a recognition that perfection is unattainable in this life because we have remaining sin. But in any given moment, we do have the ability by the Spirit to not sin. Yeah. And so your question is somewhat ambiguous. Like, in theory, yes. In practice, I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> You know, how long can we go without sinning? Well, pride will pop up in the middle of our success. Right. I mean, and that's the other thing. That's the other thing. That's a good point, Katrin. Even even your your act of compassion toward someone, is it entirely unmixed with wrong motives and things like that? So even 
our best deeds, which we do by the Spirit, are they ever completely free from sinful, uh, the taint of sin? And this is where I would say, you know, Paul says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You know, <laughs> that we long for the day. You know, what's, what's great about heaven? Is it the streets of gold and, you know, <laughs> the fact that we get to see all of our deceased loved ones? Well, that's certainly sweet, but the best thing about heaven is, is that we will, A, be freed from entirely from all the corruptions of sin and B, more importantly, be able to enjoy God free, unhindered by any corruption of sin. All right. Let me just say really quickly here. What about the essence of sin? Can I just go through this very quickly that sin is not part of man's original nature. Okay, so... That's given. Adam was created without sin. Nor should we think of it as a foreign substance that has entered into our nature and infected it. Because if we think of it that way, then it's a thing that exists in the world. And you would have to say, well, then where did it come from? Right? And... If you think of sin as a a thing, a substance that exists in the world and seeps into our nature and like like an amoeba and infects it, then it opens up the idea that, well, then just like everything else, ultimately, everything that exists, you know, where did it come from? Is God the maker of sin? This is where we're talking about very difficult things that we don't necessarily see explicit texts of Scripture, but historically, theologians have resolved this issue of what is the nature of sin as not something like a substance that's out there that invades our nature, but rather that it is a loss of something. It's a loss of that original state of righteousness that we are in. So if you think of this flower... It wasn't that a disease came in and is in there and caused the flower to wilt. It was that the flower wilted from a loss. It's a loss of something. It's a, dist- it's a distortion of its original nature. It's a corruption of the original nature. So, you know, theologians have talked about sin as a privation rather than like a positive substance. But that privation has a positive effect, Right? It's a privation that, lead, that leaves man inclined positively toward sin. It's toward what is evil. So if you think of your nature as being like this flower, something has happened so that we have lost our state of original righteousness, and as a result, we are inclined toward sin. A privation and a positive inclination. I, I wanted to put that out there, even though it's somewhat abstract, because I don't want you to think about sin as like a substance that you could theoretically have sucked out of your nature and then you'd be okay. No, it's a, it's a privation. It's a loss of something. That, and that loss of something has leaves you inclined to sin. It's a corruption, a deprivation that leaves you inclined to sin. Okay, now what are the implications of this? Just quickly run through. Well, it helps us not to reduce sin down in our minds. Helps us 
to see the true extent of sin in our lives. And I'm not talking about just the last slide. I'm talking about everything we've talked about. Helps to see us to see how serious our sin is before God. Helps us not to think of God as the author of sin. Prepares us to understand our need of redemption and what redemption accomplishes. And then you can think of others. Uh, I'm sure this has impacted you in various ways. And it's something to reflect on throughout your day. What, the importance of the things that we've talked about and how they shape our thinking, how they affect our lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together studying the doctrine of sin, just thinking about what sin is. Lord, we know that it is a good and healthy prayer to pray. Not morbid at all, but good and healthy that we would pray, Lord, show us our sin for what it is so that we would have a deep and healthy appreciation of its horror, that that would lead us to hate sin as we ought, as you hate it, that it would lead us to turn away from sin as we ought, to repent of it in our life, to not tolerate it in any form or shape, that it would lead us to cry out to you as we ought for mercy, for forgiveness of the guilt of our sin, for liberation from the power of our sin. Oh God, we are so prone to downplay sin, to treat it as far less horrible than what it truly is. And it leads to so much spiritual deficiency in our lives. Oh, please show us the sinfulness of our sin so that we might Respond to it as we ought, think about it as we ought, and appreciate as we ought the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to think that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We praise you. Please take these things and impress them upon us. By your Spirit, use them to wash us and sanctify us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.